God, those communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Turn Left's podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Caitlin and Cullen. Caitlin, she, they, and Cullen, he, him. From the Caitlin's Conspiracy Corner podcast. And just Action Rewind, Healy fans. Am I missing one? Uh, Caitlin's Conspiracy Corner. Did you say that? Yeah, this is the first one I said. Fuck. <laughs> God damn it. I am on tonight, ladies nah, and good. gents. So get ready. But yeah, we are continuing with Gladio. So obviously last week we talked about Operation Gladio. We did the first kind of overview. And like I said, I just pretty much recapped the entire episode that Matt Christman did on uh, Chapo Trap House, talking about Operation Gladio, and gave the general overview of what it was. And so now this will be a lot of notes ripped from... Sorry, I don't even have the fucking title of the book here. Operation Gladia. I have to say, this one really fucked me up. This shit is insane. Yeah, it's like, oh, I've been stewing for the past couple weeks thinking about this of like, I got to tell everybody like I'm really turning into one of those. That's like, I need my own news show so I can spread the word to everyone because this is fucking crazy. It sounds so crazy, but it's so so right there, like all the all the evidence is here. And this book that I'm going to read from, this is going to be the more in-depth version of Operation Gladio. And this was by Paul L. Williams, and it's called Operation Gladio, The Unholy Alliance Between the Vatican, the CIA, and the Mafia. And I just ripped a lot of material directly from it. But what you're going to see is, it just is even crazier than you expect from the brief overview that we did last time. And it's just, it's so much worse. I mean, we'll just get right into it. So, start off, this is a quote from Alan Dulles. And he says, we're fighting the wrong enemy. At the time, he's the Swiss director of the U.S. Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. And he came to this conclusion at the close of 1942, when the German infantry remained mired in the mud and snow of the Russian steppes. <gasps> Yay! My, did my annoying work? What's that? Yes. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> what? <laughs> it pays to be annoying, everyone. Yay, I'm so excited! Go on, Ward. Ward, it's been so quiet without you. I've been quiet without you, which is wild. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm not here to help you derail Mike on these Patreon episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I got home from a trip and then I I didn't even finish saying hi to my dogs yet. And you just start blowing up my phone. Uh, Like, really? (laughs) (laughs) But it fucking worked. Yeah, I'm here. What's up? (laughs) Thank you for joining us, Ward. I'm actually glad to have you here because this is a good one to have you on. Oh, yeah, let's do this. So, Ward, just to catch you up, we talked last week about Operation Gladio. We gave a brief overview, and now we're going to go in-depth because I'm just taking tons of material directly from this book. Operation Gladio, the unholy alliance between the Vatican, the CIA, and the Mafia. Oh, very nice. So, Alan Dulles, he says, we're fighting the wrong enemy. He came to this conclusion when the German infantry remained mired in the mud and the snow of the Russian steppes. Vatican messengers sent him a message from the SS chief Heinrich Himmler and from Walter Schallenberg, who was head of the SS Foreign Intelligence Service, that the Nazi government wanted to establish a separate peace with the U.S. in order to fight the Soviets. The Nazis and the U.S. both had the same idea that the Soviets were the one enemy that they both had. In a series of communications with Wild Bill Donovan, and he's the OSS chief in Washington, Dulles expressed eagerness to make this peace with the Nazis. And he also believed that the Soviets posed a far greater threat to the U.S. and to the stability of the Western world than Nazi. Even here, he says, the Soviets, Dulles maintained, committed acts of genocide that far surpassed the pogroms of the Third Reich. They endorsed a godless ideology that called for world revolution and the collapse of capitalism. Which, you know, great. Yeah. They believed that human history was governed by the process of dialectical materialism. 
the idea that any current economic order would always give rise to its opposite, a process that would terminate in the creation of a, quote, stateless state built on the common ownership of goods and property. Yeah, it's all dead on. Yeah, I agree with all those things. I've actually never heard anybody sum up, like, Marxism and dialectical materialism that quickly. Like, it was like three sentences, and it's like, yeah, you, you got it. Oh, God, I still stumble through dialectical materialism as someone's asked me to define it. I'm like, ah, that's, that's, that's. Well, I mean, I will say that's the first time I've ever heard somebody. I, I feel like I've understood the idea of dialectical materialism, like having these two ideas that oppose and then they, through opposing, come together and form some kind of synthesis and then you arrive at the truth somehow. But I never understood, like, why are we talking about that? Like, unless we're just trying to analyze history and then argue about why history went one way or another. But it's like, the way he's relating it and saying that an economic order will give rise to an opposite one and then they will improve that way. It's like, OK, now I can see how you're relating that on a macro scale. And that's, that's actually really cool. That was all. Yeah. I just, it's a good writing, good piece of writing from uh, Mr. Williams here. All right. So let's see. Dulles had problems with the Nazis, their goal of a thousand year Reich and the division of mankind into Ubermenschen and Untermenschen. But the Nazis were Christian. They retained a Hegelian sense of history, which explained the rise and fall of governments in terms of a spiritual process. And they shared with Americans a common Western heritage. Even more importantly, the Nazis believed in capitalism and the right of private property. They had even minted the word reprivatizing for their policy of restoring to their former owners the properties that had been seized by the government, a policy that went against the leftist trends that were spreading throughout Europe. So, fascism and capitalism hand in hand, as always. Dulles had been credited with seducing over 100 women, including Claire Booth Luce, the wife of Henry Luce, founder of Time and Life, and Queen Frederica of Greece. So, he was one of those, uh... He fucks. <laughs> From 1922 to 1926, he served as the chief of the Near East Division of the U.S. State Department. He left this post to join the Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, where his brother John Foster Dulles was a partner. Sullivan and Cromwell floated bonds for Krupp AG, the German arms manufacturer, and managed the finances of IG Farben, the German chemical conglomerate that manufactured Zyklon B. These are also the same law firms that are in charge of the United Fruit Company, like overthrowing our bands and everything. So some pretty wholesome people, okay. Yeah, just like really the greatest guys. Real salt of the earth types. It's all like the same 40 or 50 people that have really fucked up the entire history of humanity for like everyone. And they're all American intelligence and rich people. Like that's all it is. It's all fucking Ivy League graduates in their skull and bone societies. It kind of leads you. It's like I was saying this shit when I was 16. Like if you talked to me when I was in high school and you asked me who was running the world and who was ruining everything, I would have said it was the Illuminati and like the Freemasons and shit like that. And now I'm coming back around and it's like, so I did all this research and I found that like I was right. It's just like... Yep. I don't know. You just had the wrong labels to the groups. Yes. Yeah. But it's weird. Like, I always kind of had the idea that they were fascist. And, like, that's really what it is. Like, the, the Nazis never went away. They just kind of moved into these secret societies. Anyway, getting back to it. So, in addition to his law practice, Alan Dulles was elected in 1927 as the first president of the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR, an organization of high-ranking government officials, wealthy industrialists, and prominent bankers. The purpose of the CFR was to engineer a U.S. foreign policy of interventionism in order to, quote, make the world safe for democracy. So anytime you hear that, <laughs> run. <laughs> Having established contact with Hitler's high command, Dulles conducted meetings in Bern with Nazi General Richard Galen, the head of the German military intelligence. Knowing that the defeat of the Third Reich was inevitable, Galen had concocted the idea of forming clandestine guerrilla squads composed of Hitler youth and diehard fascist fanatics as, quote, stay-behind units. These units would serve as a police force to ward off a post-war Soviet invasion. Nazi general referred to the members of his secret army as werewolves, individuals who would function as ordinary citizens by day and communist killers by night. Each werewolf unit, Galen said, had access to buried depots of food, radio equipment, weapons, and explosives. Does that sound familiar? 
that yeah, we, we might have talked about. Yeah, it sounds like that first episode we covered. Yeah. But instead of fucking old drunken bush pilots, it's fucking straight up Nazis. And not even like a hyperbolic like use of Nazi. Like a, this is legit Nazis. <laughs> Literal Nazi. Uh, so I left off saying that um, these werewolves, believing the Soviets planned to take over of Germany and Western Europe at the conclusion of the war, Dulles became convinced that the OSS must reach out to these stay-behind armies in order to supply them with tactical and strategic assistance. This task, he informed Donovan and the OSS top brass in Washington, could be accomplished through Galen and SS General Carl Wolf, another Nazi Dulles had become friends with. So Wolf was commissioned Wait, as... Did, they get, did the wolf guy, like, or did he name him after the wolf guy? Like, werewolf, like, hey, he's my buddy wolf? Wait a second. Or was he just like... No, because Galen named them werewolves, and... Yeah, but it wasn't Galen's buddy... You just said he was friends with Wolf? No, um, Dulles was friends with Wolf. Oh, okay. I don't know that Galen was friends with Wolf, but they are both SS generals, so I would assume they at least know of each other. Like, Yeah. But th- that's not mentioned in here, so. After you defeat all the sheepdogs, you gotta defeat a werewolf. It's the mm-hmm. final boss. They're like a uh, memeing on those fucking chuds, like... <laughs> it's, like after, it's like, this is the final boss after you defeat all the sheepdogs. So... Um, okay, this uh, Carl Wolf guy. Wolf was commissioned as an SS Stormfuhrer in February 1932. Five years later, he was third in command of the entire SS. So he moves up quick. Obviously, he's some brutal motherfucker. His principal assignment was the arrangement of transportation of Jews to concentration camps. Wolf excelled at this task to such a degree that he was later charged with complicity in the murder of 300,000 men, women, and children. Jesus fucking Christ. Along with securing and fortifying the werewolves, Dulles busied himself with arranging the separate peace with the Nazis that would exclude the Soviet Union. This undertaking became known as Operation Sunrise. And at the end of the notes here, I also listed a bunch of things that we can also do further episodes on. Operation Sunrise is among them. So it's like, that's another thing. You just go down this rabbit hole and you keep uncovering more and more. So the separate peace should be signed without delay, Dulles informed Donovan, since it would allow the Wehrmacht, the combined armed forces of Nazi Germany, to deploy three divisions from northern Italy to the eastern front, where they could combat the Red Army. When Stalin became aware that such negotiations were underway, he went ballistic, accusing his U.S. allies of bad faith and betrayal. President Franklin Roosevelt responded that such accusations were, quote, vile misrepresentations of actuality. And so then if you go to Wikipedia, they totally represent this situation as if that's, like, they act like there's no evidence for any of this. And it's like, all of these things are footnoted. Like, you can check on the sources of all of this. I don't know. You just get told a, a completely different version of history. But so after the war, there's the Yalta Conference which is where the U.S., the U.K., and the Soviet Union divide up Europe. And this is where, you know, Germany becomes split up and everything. As soon as the ink dried on the Yalta Agreement, Dulles transported Galen and his top representatives to Fort Hunt, Virginia, where they were wined and dined by Donovan and other U.S. officials. An agreement was reached. Galen would return to Germany under U.S. protection to establish the Galen Organization, which would receive full funding from the U.S. Army G2 Intelligence Unit resources. The primary purpose of this organization would be the maintenance of the existing stay-behind armies and the recruitment of new guerrilla soldiers from the ranks of the Third Reich veterans with staunch anti-communist credentials. These soldiers would no longer be known as werewolves. They were to be known as gladiators, and they would be commissioned to ward off the communist invaders in the great theater of post-war Europe. The operation in which they were engaged was to be known as gladio, after the short swords the Roman gladiators used to kill their opponents. They're so embarrassing. (laughs) It's a big LARP, like but it's like, children, you can't even say it's a big yeah. LARP because these guys are actually out there killing them. Like, they're finding yeah. the, the heaviest murderers they can find, and it's like, but they still just got to act like fucking Lord of the Rings dwarfs. Like, yeah. What would be cool? Gladiators, bro. 
All right, we'll call them gladiators. <laughs> Arcus was just a little too on the nose, like yeah. <sighs> um, so we'll meet this guy, James Jesus Angleton. He's another major player in establishing these uh, state behind units. So he's a rabid anti-communist, an ardent Anglophile, and a devout Roman Catholic. He bred orchids. He wore a black Homburg, which is some douchey kind of hat, and he drank <laughs> bourbon for breakfast. Oh, God. A graduate of Yale, Angleton possessed a gift for poetry and had established close friendships with Ezra Pound, E.E. E. Cummings, and T.S. Eliot. And these were all dudes I had to hear about a shit ton in college as an English major. Like, these motherfuckers... I'm so sick of hearing about Ezra Pound and P.S. fucking Elliot. Fuck off. <laughs> Fluent in several languages, including German and Italian, he arrived in Rome as the commander of the secret counterintelligence unit of the OSS, the SCI. Angleton's father, Hugh, also served the OSS. Before the war, Hugh had been the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Italy and the owner of the Milan branch of the National Cash Register Company. The elder Angleton, who was outspokenly pro-Hitler and pro-Mussolini, had developed extensive contacts throughout Italy that were of great use to his son. One such contact was Prince Punio Valerio Borghese, a member of the Catholic Black nobility, the Italian aristocrats who had remained loyal to the Holy See after the rise of Garibaldi in the 19th century. So he's like the Black Prince. Like, literally, there's this Black nobility that they have, the Catholic Black nobility. So he calls this guy the Black Prince later on in this book, and it's really funny just to hear that, but it's like, hell of a nickname, if not, like, an actual <laughs> fucking title. Borghese was the leader of an Italian naval commando unit called Ex-Mas, like Ex-Mas, but just Ex-Mas, M-A-S. So after Italy signed an armistice, what's that? Here's your gifts, motherfuckers. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> wait till you hear the next paragraph. After Italy signed an armistice with the Allies, Borghese and his commandos opted to fight for the so-called Solo Republic that had been set up by the Nazis in northern Italy. His unit was given the task of attacking the Italian partisan bands that had sprouted up throughout Italy, so like these communist militias. The partisans were sponsored by the Italian Communist Party, and thanks to Ex Mas, thousands were found hanging from streetlights and flagpoles by the end of the war. So yeah, real Jesus. nice guys as well. Mm-hmm. In April 1945, Borghese met with General Wolfe and Angleton, and they discussed the possibility of extending their war efforts beyond any peace treaty with the Soviets, redeploying Ekmas under the covert direction of the OSS. Sorry, Ward, do you have the notes? Did you want to follow along? I'm just realizing. I do not have the notes. Right. I was going to ask, but I keep forgetting to. Um, <laughs> I'm just in the James Jesus Angleton section. Okay. Where? The James Jesus Angleton. Okay. I got oh. it pulled up now. Yeah, so other than the bourbon for breakfast, this guy's a fucking douche. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty douchey also. God. Uh. <laughs> I think you get to say that. I understand if you do that, so, great, cool. If you're if you like bourbon, whatever. I will say, like, this is also but, in like the nineteen He probably describes him yes! as like that's and I drink bourbon like, for breakfast oh, every morning. One hundred percent. He had to say that about himself, which is fucking embarrassing. Ugh. Yeah, you're right. This guy definitely would. You know how many cool things that I do that you guys will never know about? Because I'm so secretive and elusive. Yeah. <laughs> that she has for breakfast. Yeah. This morning I had yogurt to help my gut health because I've been on antibiotics. That's cool. Taking care of your health. Yeah. A slice of pumpkin pie. <laughs> that sounds better than bourbon for breakfast at this point. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> I think we will get into the National Cash Register Company at some point later on, but we don't get into oh, it in this, yeah. this episode. But, like, that just sounds, it sounds sus, as the kids say. That sounds sketchy for sure, yeah. All right, so let's see. In April 1945, Borghese met with General Wolf and Angleton, and they discussed the possibility of extending the war efforts beyond any peace treaty with the Soviets, redeploying ex-Mas under the covert direction of the OSS. 
Borghese was amenable to the terms, especially since his cooperation would save him from an Italian firing squad. Good motivator. I mean, just also that you're a fucking Nazi and you want to fight communists <laughs> as well. It's like, not going to hurt. So on May 15, 1945, when Borghese was arrested and charged with war crimes, Angleton managed to secure his release into U.S. Army custody. The Black Prince was dressed in an American uniform and transported from Milan to Rome. Angleton needed Borghese and the 10,267 fascists who fought under him to help establish the stay-behind units that would ward off any Soviet aggression. For a while, Angleton and other OSS officials, including Donovan, toyed with the idea of making Borghese the new king of Italy. But soon they came to their senses and realized that the ex-Mos commander would be of greater use as the leader of a shadow government, with a secret army that could manipulate Italian affairs throughout the coming decades. So this is where you start to see that shadow network that we talked about last time of Operation Gladio start coming to being. Like, like an actual deep state, you know? I mean... Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. It's like, it, it's so weird because it's like you just see these people who are sort of on the right track, but they just have all the wrong players. Yeah. Uh, to create this government, the U.S. State Department issued a mandate by which the, quote, operational resources of the Italian police, the Italian military intelligence, and the Italian Secret Service were placed at the disposal of Angleton and the SCI. Under Borghese, the Gladio forces in Italy were divided into 40 main groups, 10 specialized in sabotage, 6 each in espionage, propaganda, and escape tactics, and 12 in guerrilla activity. A special training camp for members of the state-behind units was set up in Sardinia, off Italy's western coast. The camp, thanks to the efforts of Galen and Wolf, was soon swarming with new gladiators from Germany, France, and Austria. By 1946, when the OSS morphed into the Central Intelligence Group, the precursor of the CIA, so it was the CIG before it was the CIA, kind of funny, hundreds of gladiator units were in place throughout Western Europe. Like, that's what I want to see from, like, our groups. I want to see us, like, occupy an entire island off the coast of some place and have, like, a secret yeah. camp to, like, train fucking <laughs> communist... Like uh, militant and guerrilla soldiers that like go by their business and their day jobs by day and then go out and just fascist in their beds at night. Like that's my fucking daydream. Hell yeah. Yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> like where do I sign up? Can but I we live that? in the opposite world. So if anybody tells you that we don't live in fucking fascism, this is what you could show them. Okay. But there was still a problem that seemed insurmountable. Gladio was a covert operation and had not been initiated by an act of Congress or a mandate from the Pentagon. Few federal officials knew of its existence. The $200 million in original funding came from the Rockefeller and Mellon Foundations. So Carnegie Mellon, like, think of those motherfuckers. Every rich person you've ever heard the last name of in some kind of foundation, they're an evil sick fuck, but not because they fuck children in a Jewish cabal, but because they do anti-communist evil fascist shit. They probably do fuck children, too. I mean, they do that, too, but it has nothing to do with being Jewish or, like... Yeah. Or, like, the <laughs> devil. I mean, they may even call themselves Satanists or, like, worship the devil, but it doesn't mean that, like, the devil's real. It yeah. Like, it's still all just capitalists, and it's like weird capitalists doing weird shit because they have so much money, they can do whatever the fuck they want and indulge every sick fantasy that they have and never be held yep. accountable for anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can yeah. you tell I've been thinking about this stuff a lot, too? Caitlin, can you tell about <laughs> yeah. it? It's been making have, me thinking. It's consumed my life. It's yeah. just, yeah, it's been like a cloud over my life. Of like, It's been having me thinking. How did you phrase that? I missed it. <laughs> shit. It was great. Like, my brain's like at a point where it's not working like i'm in a very good mood yeah there's like a week before my luteal phase where i'm in a great mood feel great but i'm just dumb just dumb yeah. as hell <laughs> so that's where i'm at right now you're just vibing i'm just vibing <laughs> damn don't make me talk that's too much <laughs> <laughs> i'm enjoying this shit <laughs> 
so the $200 million in original funding came from the Rockefeller and Mellon Foundations. But a new and steady stream of revenue had to be created almost overnight, or the world would not be safe for democracy. <laughs> the future of Gladio would come to reside within America's ghettos. So, now we get into the next chapter of the book. So this is a quote from the book Whiteout, The CIA, Drugs, and the Press by Alexander Coburn and Jeffrey St. Clair. What cannot now be denied is that U.S. intelligence agencies arranged for the release from prison of the world's preeminent drug lord, allowed him to rebuild his narcotics empire, watched the flow of drugs into the largely black ghettos of New York and Washington, D.C., escalate, and then lied about what they had done. This founding saga of the relationship between American spies and gangsters set patterns that would be replicated from Laos and Burma to Marseille and Panama. We're going to talk about Colonel Paul E. Hellowell now. So mainstream books about the CIA, like Tim Weiner's Legacy of Ashes, make no mention of Colonel Hellowell. Uh, his relationship with Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky, his creation of the Castle Bank in the Bahamas, and his grand experiment in the black community of Harlem. In the flood of CIA documents released since 1992, one does not find Hellowell's name in the archival indices of the National Archive, the National Security Archive, or the Federation of American Scientists. In the million declassified pages stored and indexed on the website of the Mary Farrell Foundation, Hellowell's name appears only once on a list of documents withheld from the inspection during the CIA's 1974 search for records concerning Watergate. So Williams takes the time to point that out here because it's strange. Whatever his role that we can't decipher must have been worth redacting to that point. So Hellowell had an idea. It came to him in China, where he was serving as chief of special intelligence for the OSS. Hellowell's idea would result in a union between the U.S. intelligence community and organized crime that would result in conflicts, wars, rebellions, financial upheavals, and an epidemic that would forever alter the flow of world history. Within Kunming, in the Yunnan province of China, Hellowell observed General Chiang Kai-shek, leader of the Kuomintang, or the KMT, which was the Chinese National Army, and his army is selling opium to Chinese addicts to raise funds for his army's planned war against the communist forces of Mao Zedong. So, lame. Since Hellowell's task was to provide covert assistance to the KMT, what better help could he provide than steady shipments of opiates for the good general? So Hellowell presented this idea to his boss, General William Wild Bill Donovan. Donovan shared it with James Jesus Angleton, Alan Dulles, and William Little Bill Stevenson, master spy of the British Security Coordination. So delighted with the concept, the officials arranged to funnel money to Hellowell, who now, quote, became the man who controlled the pipeline of covert funds for secret operations throughout Asia. Money for the opiates would eventually come from Nazi gold that had been laundered and manipulated by Dulles and Stevenson through the World Commerce Corporation, a financial firm established by Wild Bill. But that was still in the future. Yeah, it's just a fucking tangled web of like Nazis, opium dealers, learning from the anti-communist forces in China, how to like sell drugs to desperate people and use that money to fund your secret dark operations where you murder people. It's just like, it's fucked up. I also like how insane it is. Like if I were to describe like, dude, this opium was funded with Nazi gold. Like yeah. how insane that sounds coming out of my mouth so that like mm -hmm. no one would ever believe me. That's what I mean. Imagine trying to explain that, like, okay, you have an American general or American colonel, sorry, who's working in China with anti-communist forces there, sees that they're doing this, says, hey, why don't we just, like, addict a bunch of black people in the ghettos in America to these opiates, use that money, fund our anti-communist, like, Nazi operations that we have going on all throughout Europe in these secret networks with these underground bunkers that have all these explosives and guns and money. And it also the Vatican and the mob is all involved with all of it. Try to tell it to anybody and have them not look at you yeah. like you're crazy. But this should happen. We live in that world. Like, yeah. It sounds so insane, but yeah. It's stranger than fiction, bro. 
we need to do like a small summary of Operation Gladja for Caitlin's Conspiracy Corner. I mean, tell me if you guys think this is like a good idea, but I think like one minute clips where you just like do it in that TikTok style, what Operation Gladio is just to get it across to people. And even if they An infographic, go, Mike? They kind of, but like, I feel like infographics are like kind of going out and like TikTok no. one minute videos no, are in. And people want to, it's like people want to see that. And yeah. I think the goal is to even just get people, even if they're not convinced by that one minute video, they'll go to the Wikipedia, they'll go find a book about it and they'll be like, oh, this shit is real. That's true. Oh, that's how I found out about the cannibals who live in our beautiful national parks and forests. Oh, right. It was just some small TikTok video. And then I went down a fucking rabbit hole for like <laughs> 48 hours straight. It was insane. It's the only time I've ever researched for Caitlin's Conspiracy Corner. <laughs> it was wild. It's a wild episode. It was a good one. I really like that one a lot. I'm going to have to check that out. Okay. So now we're going to talk about... Thanks for saying that word after I, like, forced my podcast down everyone's throat. Oh, just check that out. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, like, that sounds dope. <laughs> no, I, I like that. I think I... It's a really good episode. That was another one where I think I said something in your Discord server. It's like, yeah, this is a really good episode. This is really cool. Fuck! <laughs> we, yeah, we never check our Discord. No, God damn right. it. I can't wait to check it and just see, like, months of Mike. <laughs> We're getting more and more depressed <laughs> from not responding. Answer me. <laughs> All right, so now we'll talk about civil air transport, or CAT. By the close of World War II, Hellowell and a number of fellow Army intelligence officers had created the civil air transport from surplus aircraft, including C-47 Dakotas and C-46 Commandos. Um, so let's see. When I said that he created this with a number of fellow Army intelligence officers, they were E. Howard Hunt of Watergate fame, Lucien Conan, a former member of the French Foreign Legion with strong ties to the Corsican Mafia, Tommy the Cork Corcoran, a lawyer serving the Strategic Service Unit, yeah, Lieutenant General Claire L. Chenault, Maybe. the military advisor to Chiang Kai-shek and the founder of the Flying Tigers. Sorry, what did you say, Colin? I missed it. You said he was just name-dropping Corky Romano. Corky Romano. His favorite oh, yeah. movie of all time. Uh, the Catholic transported weapons to a contingency force of the Kuomintang in Burma. The planes were then loaded with drugs for the return trip to China. The pilots who flew these bush-type aircraft were a motley group of men, often serving as agents or go-betweens with the Chinese national guerrillas and the opium buyers. Some were former Nazis, others part of the band of expatriates that emerges in countries following any war. Hellowell and his compatriots had created a model for trafficking in drugs that would result in the formation of Air America, and that was the CIA fleet of planes that transported opiates and cocaine during and after the Vietnam conflict. Thanks to their efforts, Burma's Shan Plateau would grow from a relatively minor poppy-cultivating area into the largest opium-producing region of the world. This guy single-handedly created this entire worldwide market. While Bill had drafted plans to create a post-war central intelligence agency, and knowing this, Hellowell came up with another brainstorm, a surefire means of gaining covert funding for Gladio and other security operations. A new agency, he realized, could obtain cold cash by adopting the same measures as General Chang. It could supply heroin to the black community in American ghettos. So again, just summing up what we've kind of discussed so far. So World War II had disrupted international shipping and imposed tight waterfront security that made smuggling heroin into the United States almost impossible. Heroin supplies were small and international crime syndicates had fallen into disarray. The opiates were becoming the rage of the jazz scene in Harlem and the demand for heroin was increasing day by day among black musicians in New York, where a hit could cost as much as $100. Hellowell, dealing with the drug lords of Burma, was keenly aware of this fact. The notion wasn't out of line with the OSS protocol. Hellowell and his army intelligence buddies in China were already involved with providing shipments of opium to General Chen and with giving, quote, three sticky brown bars to Burmese addicts who could offer information about the military plans of Chairman Mao. 
If similar bars could be made available to inner city dealers at rock bottom rates, then the market could be cornered and the demand made to increase in an exponential manner. LOL knew that the drug epidemic might arise, but he reasoned the problem would remain confined to the lowest strata of society, with little impact on white middle class America. Famous last words. So here, Williams gives like a, he gives like a really detailed description of the backgrounds of some of the men in the inner circle of the OSS. But I'm just going to list them because I don't want to get into like all of that. But just to say that they were all Ivy League educated social elites. So we have Henry Sergis Morgan, son of J.P. Morgan, Nicholas Roosevelt, Paul Mellon, son of Andrew Mellon, David K.E. Bruce, son-in-law of Andrew Mellon, James Jesus Angleton, as I mentioned, and Alan Dulles, Wild Bill Donovan, and members of the Vanderbilt, Carnegie, DuPont, and Ryan families. So all just the highest class people, like the richest of the richest. And this guy, uh, Wild Bill Donovan, that we've been talking about a lot, despite the nickname, he was an Ivy League lawyer, and he married Ruth Ramsey, the heiress of one of the richest families in America. So these are all just the, like I said, the wealthiest. And Donovan justified the practice of recruiting the socially elite for the OSS by saying, quote, you can hire a second-story man, and we just, I gotta do this, Oh, you can hire a second-story man and make him a better second-story man. But if you hire a lawyer, an investment banker, a professor, you have something else beside. So these are the kind of people we're talking about. That was fantastic, by the way. That was really, like yeah, that was really good. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. You sounded like a different person. Oh, we I missed was... it. Cosper, they asked uh, if they could hop in on the pod. Like, yeah, of yeah. 13 minutes ago. I was... Oh, no! Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's why I responded. I was like, you don't need to ask. Yeah, yes, seriously. just jump in. Oh, so yeah, so I left off doing my uh, waspy New England character. Hell yeah. So good. Is this Cosper? Yeah, Yay! Oh, Cosper. Cosper. What up? All right, so Cosper, just to try to catch you up a little bit, we're talking about Operation Gladio. And last week we did like an overview. And this week we're covering all the same material, but just going more in depth. But um, what we covered so far is that basically... Some high-level intelligence officers in the U.S. made contact with some high-level Nazis in the SS, and they all agreed that the Soviets were the real enemy, and that they would rather ally with each other and have all these secret guerrilla units and caches of weapons and explosives and money and all other guerrilla shit that you might need all over Europe, and these little bands of guerrillas to use them, fight communists, to kill them, do whatever they can. So that's kind of where we're at, and we're talking about the CIA and how they recruit all the highest strata of just Ivy League people. Oh, you're muted, Cosper. No, oh, yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to catch up myself mentally. It just sounds like it's like a, some team up type shit, though. It's uh, so far. It's a crazy. It's a crazy rabbit hole to it's go down. Wild. <laughs> it is wild and depressing. Yeah, it just sounds like a some weird crossover. Um. All right. So yeah, we got all these snooty Ivy League guys doing their secret Nazi shit with the mafia and the Vatican. Anyway, so when Hellowell, who was not a second story man, communicated his idea to the OSS brass, he was assured of a captive audience. They were all amenable to the idea of recruiting similarly snooty wasps. So Donovan, Angleton, and Dulles viewed Hellowell's proposal as an answered prayer. Selling smack to the black jazz subculture would provide U.S. intelligence with a steady supply of revenue for Gladio throughout the post-war era. The Truman administration had set aside no funds for covert post-war operations in the federal budget. In cold cash, Donovan knew, would become the key weapon of the new agency he remained hell-bent on establishing as soon as he got back to Washington. It alone could provide the means to purchase the services of foreign agents, foreign politicians, and foreign assassins without the approval of any elected official. Donovan's reasoning, bizarre as it might seem to modern readers, was shared by most American political leaders, Republican and Democratic alike, at the close of World War II. 
Alfred W. McCoy explains, Henry Luce, founder of the Time Life Empire, argued that America was the rightful heir to Great Britain's international primacy and heralded the post-war era as, quote, the American century. Justify their, quote, entanglement in foreign adventures, American cold warriors embraced a militantly anti-communist ideology. In their minds, the entire world was locked in a man. Sorry, I've never seen this word before, and I guess I didn't notice it when I was speaking of which. Cosper, maybe you've seen this word before, and also, <laughs> let me give you the notes so you can follow along if you like. But this word is M A N I C H A E A N. Wait, what? Where is it at? <laughs> I lost track. It's Manichaean. It's got to be Manichaean, right? Yeah. I still know who Manic Key is. I know who well. That motherfucker named Google. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Yeah, it's just a religion. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, cool. Manichaeism, a major religion founded in the 3rd century AD by the prophet Mani in the Sessian Empire. Taught an elaborate dualistic cosmo... Dualistic, get out of here, never mind. <laughs> Forget about it. Spiritual world of light and evil. Morality? Shut the fuck up. Um, so the Soviet Union... Sorry. sorry for all the religious folk out there. <laughs> or whatever. But also not. <laughs> uh, in their minds, the entire world was locked in a Manichaean struggle between, quote, godless communism and, quote, the free world. The Soviet Union was determined to conquer the world, and its leader, Joseph Stalin... Like frozen oh no he's frozen <laughs> there's no rules we can talk about anything <laughs> wait could you hear me at least no. what <laughs> <laughs> you were frozen for a super long time yeah yeah all right so like i said the soviet union was determined to conquer the world and its leader joseph stalin <laughs> yeah according to them was the new hitler oh <laughs> oh god European labor movements and Asian nationalist struggles were pawns of, quote, international communism. I love that mindset, though. Like, mm -hmm. all these labor movements, all these workers who are, like, rising up and saying, we want more workplace democracy, we want better pay, we want better benefits. No, you're just being manipulated by communists. You don't actually want those things. Like, you're just pawns. You're useful idiots of communism. Like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure I want those fucking things. Like, yeah, no, that sounds pretty good. European labor movements and Asian nationalist struggles were pawns of, quote, international communism. And as such, had to be subverted or destroyed. There could be no compromise with this monolithic evil. Negotiations were, quote, appeasement, and neutralism was immoral. In this desperate struggle to save, quote, Western civilization, any ally was welcome and any means was justified. Since any ally was welcome and any means justifiable, while Bill decided the implementation of Hellowell's drug scheme would enable him to make use of Charles Lucky Luciano and the Sicilian Mafia. So here's where the Mafia comes in. So Charles Lucky Luciano, born in Sicily as Salvatore Luciana, emerged as America's leading mafioso by creating, quote, the Commission with Meyer Lansky, his longtime friend and accomplice in 1931. The Commission eventually governed organized criminal activity within the United States by establishing territorial boundaries, settling internal disputes, and ruling on in-house killings. Twelve mafia bosses sat on the board of directors with Luciano as the head. During Prohibition, Luciano and Lansky gained control of the New York Docks and Longshoremen's Union by means of muscle and blood in order to supply speakeasies within Manhattan with scotch from Scotland rum from the Caribbean, and whiskey from Canada. When a bloody war broke out between the families of Giuseppe de Boss Massaria and Salvatore Maranzano from 1927 to 1929, Luciano put an end to it by arranging the elimination of both mafia chiefs and laying down the law to survivors. Here's a quote from him. We're at in the nose exactly, are we? I'll do the accent. 
Uh, right above the ba- last paragraph. I told him we was in the business. That one. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Get it. <laughs> I told him we was in the business so that had to keep a moving without explosions. <laughs> Every two minutes knocking guys off just because they came from a different part of Sicily. That kind of crap was giving us a bad name and we couldn't operate until it stopped. Ah, come on. That was just like the fellas. <laughs> yes, that was great. <laughs> Fucking Tony Soprano over here. Forget about it. Um, all right, so I just want to wrap up. We'll talk about just the involvement of prostitution, because obviously we talked about the drug trade. So at the end of Prohibition, Lucky Luciano imported heroin from the Chinese warlords in Shanghai and Tianjin that had then been refined in laboratories controlled by the Corsican Mafia. The product that reached the mean streets and opium dens of Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and San Francisco was less than 3% pure, since it was heavily cut with sugar or quinine. What's more, a surprising amount of the product did not include any heroin at all. Heroin represented a minute part of the commission's business. Before World War II, America had less than 20,000 heroin addicts and less than 1,000 kilos were produced annually throughout the world. Use of the drug in America remained largely confined to Asian immigrants and black musicians, and most made men, the term for fully initiated members of the mafia, shunned drug peddling as an immoral and unmanly activity. Mafioso Joe Bonanno, probably Joe Bonanno, not Bonanno. <laughs> It looks like banana when I'm reading it, sorry. I'm Joey Bananas. <laughs> hey, I'm fucking Joey Bananas over here. You know that would be his nickname immediately. <laughs> Joey Chiquita Banana. <laughs> He's uniting the fruit over here. <laughs> so mafioso Joe Banano wrote in his memoirs, quote, My tradition outlaws narcotics. Men of honor, men of honor, don't deal in narcotics. Lucky was the exception to this code of honor. He established the heroin trade with the Turkish and Chinese opium merchants, saving a considerable amount of the good stuff for the women who worked his brothels. The drugs served to strengthen their dependence upon his largesse and goodwill. Indeed, the combination of organized prostitution and drug addiction became one of Lucky's trademarks. By 1936, he controlled 200 New York City brothels, employing 1,200 prostitutes. These establishments provided him with an estimated annual income of $10 million. On February 2, 1936, U.S. Attorney Thomas E. Dewey launched a raid of brothels in Manhattan and Brooklyn. So the judge involved in this, I'm going to summarize this shortly. The judge involved in this raid, he imposed very expensive bail for the suspects, and there were all these low-level guys who couldn't afford it, so several of them, a lot of the prostitutes mostly, they flipped on Luciano. And so on June 7th, Lucky was convicted on 62 counts of compulsory prostitution and sentenced 30 to 50 years of hard time at the Clinton Correctional Facility in upstate New York. Even with the prison so harsh, it was known as, quote, Little Siberia, Lucky managed to bribe prison officials with enough cash to gain not only a private cell on the best block, but also a personal valet to press his dress slacks and silk shirts and an experienced chef to prepare his meals. The warden also permitted him to receive a steady stream of visitors, including Vito Genovese, his underboss, and Meyer Lansky, his longtime partner in crime. So this guy is just conducting business and having, like, living the fucking life in prison because he's got money. Literally good fellow shit. Yeah, dude. Um, and that's actually where I stopped reading the book. And we're just going to stop there. I know it's like a weird kind of place to leave it off, but so that's what we're introducing is like not only is drugs involved, but prostitution. Yeah, I mean, if you want to look for an easy scapegoat for all of like the disintegration of social fabric that has occurred in America, yeah, this is where you point the finger. And then so like I said, other possible episode topics that we will cover later, Operation Sunrise, James Jesus Angleton himself, because that guy seems like a fucking, like a trip. Air America, Unit 731, this was like, the Japanese equivalent to like Operation Paperclip, where the U.S. took all these Japanese horrific motherfuckers who did like these biological experiments on thousands of people 
and took them and shielded them from any kind of accountability because they wanted the knowledge that they gained from all these experiments on humans. Um, and then Operation Phoenix I put in there as well, which I can't remember what that was, but it's something relevant to all of these, and we will cover it at some point. So that's all I got. That's it for the official whatever we want to talk about as far as <laughs> Gladio is going on tonight. Go ahead, uh, Caitlin, do your plugs. Uh, what are our plugs? Caitlin's Conspiracy Corner, VHS Action Rewind. We have one sitting in the bank, Terminator. One day, it's so funny, and like every time Cullen starts editing it, I just laugh so much. But it'll probably never come out. What else? Steely fans, yeah, just a lot of stuff we haven't done in a while. Yeah. <laughs> Shannon's doing now showdown. Oh, That's Shannon's good. yeah, Shannon's been keeping up with now showdown. I love that she uh, plugs turn leftists in her now showdowns. It's oh, yeah. so sweet. It just makes me laugh because it's like not political at all. And then she's like, and listen to Turn Leftist. <laughs> um, yeah, Shannon's got Now Showdown. And that's pretty much it. Is that it? That's it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Like your Patreon? Uh, oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. Pay, pay me? Pay me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pay me. Patreon.com slash Hosper underscore. Yeah, or like follow me on Existence is Innocent on Instagram because we're doing the reading groups and shit. Oh, yeah, the YouTube. You can, yeah. Oh, the YouTube. Also, Existence is Innocent. We have recorded readings of Spinoza and Deleuze and, yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, we also have a Patreon. Oh, yeah. Go for it. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it's it's called, but we have a Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're gonna have to talk to shannon if you want to find out what her fucking stop being lazy talk to shannon find out what her patreon's called and maybe it's caitlin maybe for a small fee you could you could have a video of cullen tasting mozzarella sticks and rating one dollar a month for one dollar a month cullen will rate and review mozzarella sticks for you so nice i forget what ears are but yeah well we have a we have a feet picks one for like five hundred dollars a month, Ooh, we'll oh, all take pictures oh, of our damn. feet. Yeah, I've been trying to sell these little tipsies for so long, and I don't get any takers. Anytime an old dude comments on like usually VHS Action Rewind, I'm like, "Will you buy my feet pics?" <laughs> and they never respond. <laughs> Jesus, I want to sell my feet pics so bad. God damn it! I also want to plug. I know I've never had anyone ask, and it's upsetting. I know exactly, and I feel like. The feet men just fall out of nowhere for some people. And I, got, I got a friend. She's been offered, like, <laughs> yo, I'll pay you for feet pics so God. many times. Damn, damn it. it. God damn it. What the fuck? I just said the same thing. Exactly. That's what it feels like. That's all. <laughs> what it feels you like. Feel. Yes. It's, it's like, I just, I don't, I don't care about my, and I put like special feet. Like my feet are. They're tattooed. They're different. They're interesting. Yeah, it's, they're not like other make feet. anything more like appealing. I guess. I don't yeah, know. I, I, not like I, have, I have normal, normal feet. You know, I think I have pretty feet. <laughs> Word. Plug your page, please. <laughs> Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Millennial Leftist. Uh, also, have my backup Instagram at Millennial Marxist, and follow me on Twitter at War Lolly W A R D L A W L E Y. Oh yeah! All right, I'm out of here for real. If anybody sticks okay. around, just disconnect the bots when you're done. See ya. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. Bye. Bye. Guys. Bye. Bye.